Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Jennifer Down. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands. There has never been a treaty made in Australia. Jennifer Down is the award-winning author of Our Magic Hour and Pulse Poitons. She has been a Sydney Morning Herald Young Writer of the Year award winner, and there's been huge anticipation, so it's so great to be able to bring you a conversation about her new novel, Bodies of Light. Holly has a simple but a happy life. It's uncomplicated for a reason, and Holly would prefer that it stays that way. When a message out of the blue drags her into her past, she's shaken, She felt that she'd escaped, buried the ghosts, and become a new person. No one should know who Maggie is, but now she's faced with the woman that she used to be. Trauma is so rarely far from the surface, and we're thrown into Maggie's life to revisit all the events that have brought her to where she is today, and those that once caused her to disappear. Join me as we discover Jennifer Downs' Bodies of Light. Hello. Hello. I am a little bit far away from my microphone because I thought, let's let's have some fun. I'm going to introduce you to the bane of my existence. Oh, my goodness. I can do the same. Who is this? This is Rocket. Hi, Rocket. She this has- is Nelson. Sorry, you just have to excuse the mess. It's a big freelance day, so I apologize. But That is okay. Hello, Nelson. Nelson, I know you are as Twitter famous as Rocket is in her own way, because I have <laughs> seen Nelson before on your Twitter. He's, um, he's just run away to the front door because he's confused about where this noise is coming from. So, I... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, you, if you're sitting there, you've got to work around this. Okay. <laughs> Rocket. I'm super excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me back, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Bodies of Light. A message out of the blue drags Maggie into her past. She felt she'd escaped, buried the ghosts, and become a new person. But trauma is rarely far from the surface, and Maggie must now revisit all the events that have brought her to where she is today. There was an enormous sense of anticipation around this novel. Um, And in fact, I remember hearing you talk at Sydney Writers' Festival a few years back, um, pre-pandemic time, and you were talking about the process of what is now Bodies of Light. I don't think it had a name then. I think it was still very in a gestational stage. I remember you describing your meticulous research, but also uh, the mental work that you were going through with the, the manuscript, I think, as it was at the time. This is a tremendous book. It's simultaneously beautiful and terrible in the journey that it takes the reader on. But I want to know, I want to start off with your journey. What was your journey? Where did Bodies of Light come from and where did it take you? Yeah, so it kind of, um, it, it, it grew out of, I guess, twin preoccupations. Um, very, very different. And I kind of ended up braiding them together. And so one of those is um, a, a, I don't know, it sounds awful to say, 
interest, but I've, I've long been disturbed, let's say, by, um, by how we as, as a country and as, as states, of course, um, treat children in state care. And I, I say care in kind of quotation marks. Um, I think we have a really terrible track record of just not, not listening to children in this country um, and of not particularly caring uh, what happens to them. And so I've always been, uh, you know, kind of horrified, not, not having grown up in that system myself, not having firsthand experiences, but have always been uh, bewildered and, and uh, I don't quite dismayed really about the way that we treat our most vulnerable young people and what happens to you if you are not fortunate enough to grow up in a kind of, you know, semi-stable family environment. Um, and so there was kind of this, this uh, niggling interest in um, or despair at is perhaps a better phrase um, in, you know, that, that idea of institutional abuse and of what it means to grow up in resi or out of home care. Um, and then entirely separately from that, and I think maybe this is what you're talking about, um, this is certainly what I was preoccupied with around the time I, I would have uh, spoken to you at Sydney Writers Festival, um, is this idea of um, death fraud or what it, what it means to kind of uh, become a new person and, and disappear. And it's, it's a morbid fascination that I've had for, I don't know, maybe five or six years, maybe a little bit more. Um, and... I started out being interested in kind of the practicality of it, you know, what it means to, to leave your life behind and uh, reconstitute your, your sense of self. And then the longer I sat with that, the more, I, the more I became interested in more esoteric questions about what happens to your memory and your sense of identity, your sense of self, to what extent is it possible to kind of erase or annihilate um, the residue of past memories and traumas and, you know, not just traumas, but, but happy times as well. Like to, to what extent are we a product of our experiences and how much can we kind of manipulate or dissemble that at will? It strikes me both, both of those topics, I guess, have a thread or a theme of how much agency we give to young voices um, in both. I mean, it, it seems in both there is, there is an erasure of young voices and a denial of of the impact of that young experience, and I wonder. And I'm just I'm just riffing on what you just said there. But how much of that resonates? Not not only through so the the children that you are talking about, the children that you you discussed who have lived in out of home care or residential care, but the people that are making the decisions. Because it it strikes me that for for any adult who is able to properly think about their own childhood and the childhood of others, if, if you can actually acknowledge that voice, that, that person that you once were, we couldn't be who we are today. We couldn't then be denying new generations on and on and on and saying you, you have no voice virtually until you're an adult. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, <clears throat> I think there's, it, there's quite a big problem in the sense that We as a society, uh, I think we really struggle to witness or acknowledge um, the pain of young people. And of course, um, vulnerable young people are kind of among the most silent or or least visible um, sections of the population. It's very difficult for them to have agency in terms of, uh, in terms of having a voice, I think. It's not, Mm. you know, 
we could, we could get into a big discussion about like the gatekeepers of media and things like that. But even, even among, you know, the general adult population, there's kind of a hierarchy of, of who gets to tell their story. And um, certainly at risk young people, I think, uh, you know, tend to, to be um, placed very firmly toward the base of that pyramid. And so I think certainly there's like a, a cyclical or generational element to it, but I think we haven't really even as a, as a people or as a society begun to acknowledge the problems that exist and have existed for, for kind of generations. And it's, um, it's fascinating and, and also deeply distressing to me that, you know, once every couple of years or once a decade, we'll have these um, parliamentary inquiries or, you know, Royal commissions or whatever they'll, and there'll be these, these papers tabled into the forgotten Australians or, um, you know, individual uh, state parliament reports. And it's not that, like a lot of work goes into these reports mm. and they often are very painstaking in the way that they collate first person testimony and speak to care survivors and care leaders. Um, and, and then nothing happens. Like the government just fails to take on these recommendations. And the reality is that the general public doesn't usually read these, these, these kinds of documents. It's not, you know, it, it might get a few columns in like the, the Fairfax paper, mm. but the reality is that most of the general public is kind of inured from, um, from those stories and so I, I totally agree. There, there's like an element of, of um, something cyclical there, but really I think that like a lot of people just don't know what, what is going on. And that's deeply, deeply sad, I think. Mm. I'm looking at a set of questions that I've written and then a set of ideas that are emerging from what <laughs> we're talking about at the moment. And I'm noting the time because I feel like I'm I'm going to want to know where I need to sort of cut and come back to the the questions about your incredible book. But I just um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned in, in any of our chats that we've had. Um, my job, my day job, is I'm a speech pathologist. So when we start talking about children and agency and particularly communication, this is mm-hmm. I have a huge vested interest in thinking about what you were just saying there. I it strikes me that. From a developmental perspective, we we often fail to maybe not the idea is to separate, but to properly bring together the the function of communication as as a thing that we just need to do in our life and the very human need that exists and cannot be erased by any circumstance to communicate because there are plenty of people out there who are incredible communicators. And then there are people who have varying degrees of communication in what we might call a typical way, verbal communication, speaking a dominant culture language. That variation in the way we communicate does not influence that human need we have to communicate. But as soon as someone can't communicate in a typical way, they are instantly put into a particular type of box. And I think we're coming back to what you were saying there when we deal particularly with um, disability or, or anything that impacts function, but then also trauma and mental health, which can mm-hmm. also impact communication. We're in this situation where people are discounted, people are ignored. I think in some ways it makes it easier for people to ignore. If, if it's harder for you to say your message, then it's easier for someone to ignore that message. And we forget that communication is not just someone talking, it's also someone exactly. listening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's having somebody else on the other end willing mm. to to listen and, and you know, not just to listen but to do so in a kind of empathetic way, mm. possibly with a, with a view towards helping out or making kind of concrete practical changes for this other person. Yeah. 
Thank you. This is like this. You've now put a whole new spin on Bodies of Light for me, and, and connected connected in this incredible way. Yeah, you should just do one to one, one on one interviews with everyone <laughs> who loves your book and and just wants. But look, what, <laughs> I have a question that begins with I'm going to say at the outset, and here we are, like ten minutes into the conversation, it's no longer the outset. But before we really get more into Bodies of Light, I wanted to say I I don't know how much to talk about. I don't know what should and shouldn't be revealed. There are parts of Maggie's story that I, it doesn't feel right to discuss and not not because of some sort of narrative spoiler, but because of the way you bring Maggie to life. I I don't know if it's my story to just drop into an interview and this is a fictional character. But mm. So I, I, I rewrote this question <laughs> two minutes before we were about to join up and and talk about bodies of light because bodies of light has triggered this kind of existential crisis within me and the way that I process literature. A little part of me wants to move into a future where I've made more sense of things and talk, talk about this with you. Maybe when I've read the book again or in a year or two, when experience has, has taught me different things. I can't do that though. So I'm going to ask you, has this process helped you make sense of any of these things? Uh, do you, sorry, do you mean that it makes sense of the, the kind of themes and existential questions of the book or? Sure. Like I'm, I'm really like a part of me is just, I feel like I'm, I'm standing in front of a vast landscape that <laughs> I understand is important, but I don't quite know why yet. Um, even just something as simple as Maggie's life, which as I said, you, you realize in such the word I actually wrote was excruciating detail, and I use, realize I'm using these adjectives that have such negative connotations, but that, I don't mean it in that way. You've you've brought us into someone's life in a way that we very rarely get the chance to. Did did living that closely with Maggie help you make sense of anything? Yeah, I guess. Um, look, I guess it, if. I, I said before that like this, and we, we were both said this is a fictional story. It's not my story. I did not grow up in, you know, residential out-of-home care. And so uh, to some extent I have the same reservations. Like it's not my story to tell either. Right. And then you go back to that idea of, well, it, it is a fictional tale. You know, I'm, I'm not narrativizing or, or kind of pulling on, um, you know, it, it's not, it's not even a, a fictional retelling of somebody else's life. Although there are certainly uh, elements of, of the story that, um, you know, it, it's not it's not total fantasy either. I did a lot of a lot of research and reading, um, and and kind of engaged with a lot of uh, first person uh, testimony. But um, I think what I realised is that you know it, it's a really long book, and as you say, it's it's kind of uh, it's excruciating in its detail. And I think what I realised as somebody who previously would have said that I prefer or I lean toward economy of style instead of like this, this feels like a really long book to me as a, as both a, you know, a writer and a, a reader, I guess. But um, the more I wrote myself into the story, the more I realized that from my perspective, at least it needed to be that way because I wanted to feel like I was doing justice to this person's life. And that means not just kind of uh, sharing the, you know, the really traumatic or salacious details, but also the, the, the kind of quiet moments, whether that's quiet joy or, you know, the just simple moments of contentment or the boring bits of the, you know, the things where, I mean, I hope there's not too much that's boring there, but you know what I mean? The kind of the minutiae of the day to day, because, because no one's life is, um, 
you know, is without those moments. Mm. And so it, it felt important to me um, uh, in, in, in so far as I wanted to write something that was faithful and, and didn't feel voyeuristic or kind of, I don't know, bloodthirsty and titillating, um, which is what a lot of trauma narratives do. And it's something that I kind of struggle with from an ethical perspective. Um, anyway, I, I think I, for me, it was necessary to write something incredibly detailed to, to kind of bring this character to life so that it was more than just like a sketch of a person to whom, uh, you know, a handful of unspeakably terrible things had happened. You know, like none of us is more, we're, we're all more than the sum of our greatest tragedies. I think even when those ex- uh, tragedies are exceptionally uh, horrific or numerous. Can I ask then about that, that sort of ethical issue you were flagging and, for me, it feels very much like uh, um, a biographical work hits very differently to a fictional work, but I think they they can still occupy the same space. And I, I really appreciate a work such as Bodies of Light, which can take me into a space, but because it is completely removed from a, an identifiable individual's experience, it, it allows me to occupy the space somewhat. Like... Um, I'm struggling to put words on my experience, but there is definitely something uh, about a fictional narrative that that drags me in and and kind of like I mean at the moment feeling a little bit you know chewed up and spat out, but in in the good way that like that that's why I come to literature. Like I I can't live just inside my own body and feel like you know that's the entire world. Um, and there's something really interesting about what you've done in Bodies of of Light. Um, that turned out to be a comment, not a question. <laughs> That's it. No, it's, it's sorry. I was. I had my thinking face on the whole time you were talking. I was. Yeah, I don't know. It's. It. It is. I mean, at, at the simplest level, I couldn't have written this as a as a biographical or memoir piece, right? Because I mean, I I, I could have you know gone out and interviewed somebody and, and blah 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 blah. But um, the story kind of grew from from a, a place of fiction, and um, and then the research hopefully makes it feel, uh, you know, true to life. But it is, um, I think there's something about knowing that it's fiction as well, right, from like a reader's perspective. And maybe I'm projecting, like, I can't, I can't see it objectively as a reader anymore. But I think there's something, uh, there must be some relief, right, as a reader in knowing that it's fiction. Because even though there are people who have experienced all of these things in real life and probably people that you and I know uh, at the end of the day, you can, you can put the book down and go, Oh, it's not, it's not real. It's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a story mm-hmm. and it's probably easier to read emotionally in that sense because we don't have the, you know, it's not, it's not the witnessing of a literal documentary where um, you, you're left with the kind of inescapable knowledge of it being a series of you know true facts being recounted. The flip of that and, and something that I think happened to me while I was reading is because it was fiction, because it wasn't one person's story, I couldn't, I couldn't contain things in, in the one person. The, the fictional character started radiating out and it became, it touched, it touched all of the lives that I know that, that have had pieces of the tragedies that you mm. describe, which is just infinitely more overwhelming. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are we good? I, I think it. I think it depends on how you you go in, what your state of mind is, and what you what you are hoping to get from a book. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Mm. Another thing that it being fiction um, inevitably draws our attention to is that it is it has been crafted. There mm-hmm. are decisions that you have made that you have made as the author, which I guess if it were potentially if it were memoir, you uh, uh, someone might be limited to what they can do. And, and one of those is memory. And I really want to talk to you about the way memory works mm-hmm. in bodies of light. And, and when I say might be limited, we if we're talking and telling our own story, we don't know what we haven't remembered where... Yeah. We're stuck in our own memory. But Maggie's, Maggie's narrative, it at times is incredibly lucid, often more detailed perhaps than we might expect. But mm-hmm. that's something of the trauma. If anyone who's been through a traumatic experience, it can slow down time. It can make you focus on incredible, uh, seemingly inconsequential detail. There are also other times, seemingly important moments, where there are gaps or perhaps sparse details, another, another I guess, impact of trauma how did you want to represent that interplay of the storytelling but also the way memory works and what does it actually mean for the way we engage with Maggie I think I I have I'm kind of fascinated by memory generally and I you know always have been as a writer and and as a as a person Um, but I in this book it became really important to uh, how can I say this like to to write memory or to write Maggie's memories in a way that um, felt faithful to and logically consistent with her upbringing, which, as you say, you know, is incredibly splintered by um, geography and trauma and, um, you know, kind of this rotating cast of people moving in and out of her life as she's kind of shuttled from place to place. And so I, I wanted to write in a way that, um, you know, reflected how most of these events, you know, are are kind of inextricably, like they they end up in the marrow of your your bones, right? Mm. But also this idea that if you have no record of self, no physical record of self. So what I'm talking about is, um, I don't think this is a spoiler, but there's a passage in in the book, for, ex- for example, where um, Maggie requests her state, her, her care record, sorry, from um, the state government. And uh, she receives a small kind of bundle of documents and she's dismayed at how little is there. Um, actually a lot of the time there's, there's nothing there, which is, you know, is horrific, but the things that she finds there are kind of um, deeply unsettling to her because she realizes that, um, you know, things that she thought to be true about herself, like, you know, basic facts, like the age that she entered state care, um, those kind of basic facts of self are unsettled. And so on top of that, she also doesn't have photographs of herself throughout her life. Right. And you can say, well, yeah, that's like an aesthetic thing, whatever. Like plenty of people don't have photographs, but most of us do have somebody else, whether it's a sibling or a friend or a neighbor or a parent, you know, a loved one we've known for a long time. Most of us have at least one person and usually dozens of people to whom we can kind of say, remember the time that we did this. Remember that awful Christmas when this happened. Remember when you fell off your skateboard and broke your wrist. And I started thinking about what it must be like to move through the world with so little proof of personhood. Um, 
and and I kind of have given photographs as the most obvious memory, but there's all of these other tangible things like birth certificates and uh, you know bank cards and the, the kind of paper ephemera that constitutes a, an identity. And then there are intangible things like you know the the vocabulary of memory and and being able to kind of say remember when and. I, I started thinking about what it would be like to get to a certain point. Maggie's kind of middle-aged when the story begins and then we move back in time to, to kind of follow her throughout her life. And I started thinking about what, what must it be like to get to almost 50 and really have very little proof that you exist um, anywhere. And I, I just kept thinking, it, you know, it'd be, it would really mess you up. And I think that was a big part of that interrogation of memory, like the point, the point is not that Maggie is a reliable or unreliable narrator. Um, the point is that I hope that the way that her memories are recounted feels, feels faithful to someone who's experienced the things that she has. Mm. You absolutely staggered me with the detail that you went into in creating this. The, and, and, and for me, actually, particularly, it was the moments and the little historical asides, everything from, from brands of ice cream and, and TV shows and news stories. And how did you track all this? What, what did it mean for you? I mean, I, I feel like the amount of detail you've gone into, there must have been times where you were almost seeing the, Maggie's world in bringing bodies of light to life. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, like, detail-oriented generally, and it felt important to me to kind of honor the you know the those small details and you know on one hand I I don't like it when a book is too freighted with you know temporal or cultural references it can kind of start to break and um you know there doesn't need to be a song mentioned on every third page or whatever but um for for a book that is so you know like the first quarter of the book is grounded very deeply in like the daggy um southeastern suburbs of melbourne which is you know the area where i grew up and i it's set before i was born but i know the area really well so it was really important to me to be able to like bring other people into it you know and 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 to represent it in a way that you know it, it felt real and i think that you know those those kind of cultural or temporal um markers um like from a technical perspective they just they kind of ground the reader and remind them this is where we are this is what's important in the world this is what's happening this is kind of the the socio-cultural context in which in which these events are happening and it's all it's all kind of background you know dressing right but um I think, I don't know, I, I personally, like as a writer, as a reader, I don't think I care all that much, but as a writer, I'm very invested in like very similitude and I'm kind of obsessive about getting all of this stuff right. And so um, I did, I did end up like with this, um, I, don't, I don't know if I've said this in an interview before, it's quite embarrassing. I had this like insane monster spreadsheet, um, like a Google spreadsheet that I eventually sent to my editor. And I think, I think she was like deeply disturbed by it. She's, I, just didn't acknowledge it um, because I had like, I'm, I'm really bad with numbers. Like I can't remember numbers. I can't recognize numbers. I can't do maths. And because this narrative spans such a timeline, I had to go through like every year, I think it starts in 1975. I'm probably wrong about that. Um, but mid 1970s. And I had to kind of chart, you know, a all the places that Maggie lived 
um, what her what her kind of family or, or um, domestic situation was, um, any like cultural touchstones mentioned. So if she goes to a movie or if there is, um, I don't know, uh, did we call it Centrelink back then? No, we didn't. You know, we, we called it uh, something else. And was there a Centrelink building at the, the location that I'm talking about? Um, and you know what, like 99% of readers don't care about that stuff, but, um, I think I have to write for the 1% who will say, oh, well that didn't, that restaurant didn't open until 1997. So, you know, and I think it, it does matter, right? Because if you are that, if you are that one reader who recognizes that something is like historically inaccurate, it does take you out of the story and it makes it seem less real. And I, I think that's why I, I end up so invested in it. But yeah, I had this, I had this, uh, awful looking spreadsheet that was just like God knows how many columns. And it was like, this is real. This is made up, you know? Uh, and then we did a lot of fact checking and um, my beautiful editor in, in the copy edit stage was like, I can't remember what, I think I had a character going to see the land before time at um, a cinema and it transpired that it had been released in the US at that time, which is of course what I looked up on IMDb, but it didn't come out in Australia until almost mm. a full year later. And so there was this, like, it had to become, I think it, it became like my cousin Vinny or something. It was, it became, uh, it became something else. I can't remember, but yeah, it's, I'm just going to take a, I'm just taking a deep breath so that I don't start shouting out a Treyu. Oh no, I did it. <laughs> um, I feel like I am. I feel like I am a little, little part of. I'm. I'm probably never going to pull you up for calling, uh, calling it KFC when in fact it was Kentucky Fried Chicken at the time. But I, I cannot help but be struck with the deep irony that in order to create a character who gets to about age fifty with no record of her life, you have created a deeper, you know better mapped out record than any person reasonably has about their life. Yeah. Because it has to feel real for mm. the reader. Like it's, it's not about, yeah, it's not about, um, I don't know, me as the writer, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it has to, it has to feel. No, you're in my interview. This is about you as the writer. And I, I need to ask, <laughs> I need to ask this question though, because I know you're a writer, but you don't just, you don't just write novels. It's not like you've, you've only ever written words in the three books that we know of you. Um, and I know you're also an editor. So the craft wise, you, you have made some really important decisions. I feel like you struck that balance in bodies of light, but like what is going through your, your head? How do you know, when to mention the type of ice cream, how, how do you know when is just right? Not too much, not too little. Um, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. And I think like I have, I have uh, every confidence and like uh, limitless lidless faith in, in my editor. So I'm, I, I, that is a very nice little safety net knowing that Mm. they'll be like, no, this is a bridge too far. Like you can, you can chill out on whatever it is I'm talking about. And, and just sorry, just um, quickly to give props, the, the, your editor is Elena Gugulis, yes? Yes. So I was actually really fortunate to work with two amazing editors on this book. Um, Elena um, worked on it during the kind of earlier, um, well, sorry, not just the earlier. She, she was a champion cheerleader the whole time I was writing it and then um, performed the kind of, I guess, like the structural edit. Mm. And then um, she went on maternity leave and um, the lovely ENC stepped into fill her very big shoes and he kind of shepherded it through the, uh, you know, various rounds of page proofs and things. Awesome. I just um, wanted to shout out cause Elena has, has, 
appeared on the show, been a guest before, and I thought it's wonderful to shout out to people behind the scenes as well. Totally, because- uh, and especially like editors really don't get they're such like it sounds like a cliche, but they're such unsung heroes. Like even book designers, rightly, you know, there's like awards and 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 they're kind of they're, they're credited, um, and editors are so often like you know uh unnamed and yeah no they're, they're both amazing and it was a total privilege to to work with both elena and ian that's it for this great conversation with jennifer down this was part one of the conversation with jennifer her new novel is bodies of light it's out now from text part two of this conversation will be available tomorrow Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means a new great conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.